This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Cancer Survivorship. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, filling in for our moderator, Dr. Jim Allen. I'm Dr. Jim Allen. Dr. Jing Jing Mao's off this week, so I'll be guest hosting today's MedNet webcast. We're going to be discussing cancer survivorship. This wasn't even a concern for physicians 100 years ago because cancer was rarely cured and survival was relatively short. The development of chemotherapy allowed previously untreatable cancers to be cured, but chemotherapy was discovered somewhat by accident. In World War I, mustard gas was used as a chemical warfare agent, and it was effective, killing more than 91,000 soldiers. Military physicians noted that survivors of mustard gas attacks had very low white blood cell counts and were susceptible to infections. But gas attacks also caused a lot of collateral damage, resulting in a quarter of a million civilian casualties. This led to the 1925 Geneva Protocol, when all of the world's major nations pledged to never use gas in warfare again. However, during World War II, the U.S. government secretly produced chemical warfare agents despite the Geneva Protocol. In 1943, the Liberty ship SS John Harvey was carrying a secret cargo of 65 tons of nitrogen mustard to the European front. On December 2, 1943, while docked in the Italian harbor of Barry, the SS John Harvey and 27 other Allied ships were blown up by German bombers. Within days, surviving seamen cast into the water started developing blindness and chemical burns. Soon, 628 sailors were ill and 83 of them died. An astute young military physician named Stuart Alexander was dispatched to Barry to solve the mystery of the sailors' ailment. And based on their clinical findings, he suspected mustard gas. Well, U.S. military officials covered up the incident and denied that the ship was actually carrying chemical weapons. However, Dr. Alexander kept at his investigation and eventually did prove that mustard gas was indeed responsible. His studies also showed that nitrogen mustard could profoundly suppress white blood cell production. Well, meanwhile, the U.S. military funded two pharmacologists from Yale University to study chemical warfare research. Dr. Lewis Gilman and Dr. Alfred uh, Gilman found that lymphomas in animal experiments shrank after the animals were treated with nitrogen mustard. This led Goodman and Gilman to treat a patient dying of lymphoma with nitrogen mustard. It worked, and the lymphoma regressed temporarily. Because of the secret nature of the research, they didn't publish it until 1946. After the war, physicians combined Alexander's observations of leukopenia caused by mustard gas with Goodman and Gilman's findings, and chemotherapy was born. 
Now, in addition to, to traditional chemotherapy, we have hormonal therapy, driver-directed cancer therapies, and immunotherapy. As a result, more people are surviving cancer than ever before. But with survivorship came new medical problems. Today on MedNet, we're going to hear about cancer survivorship and what physicians need to know in order to manage some of the medical conditions attendant to survivorship. I'm pleased to welcome today's guest, oncologist and assistant professor of internal medicine, Dr. Ashley Pariser. Ashley, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Jim. Well, Ashley, many physicians view cure as the endpoint for cancer treatment. What are some of the most common medical and psychological conditions that you encounter in patients who survive their cancer? Well, I think a diagnosis of cancer can be very traumatic for patients. And although we're shooting to cure all patients, there are long-term side effects. And commonly, those include anxiety, depression, fear of recurrence, but it can also have impacts on the family as well as finances. What's the role of the primary care provider in cancer survivorship? I think the role of the primary care provider is to be the captain of the ship and make sure that patients are being screened, especially for um, different conditions that we have really good treatments for and getting appropriate referrals to different specialties as appropriate. Well, thanks, Ashley. For all of you viewing, don't forget that you can view this and all 120 of our current MedNet webcasts by going to ccme.osu.edu on your web browser. And if you prefer to get your continuing medical education by podcast, just go to your podcast app and search MedNet21CME. Also, you can email us with your questions about cancer survivorship by using the Ask a Question icon at the bottom of the MedNet webpage. And now let's get started with today's webcast. Ashley? Thank you so much. It's my pleasure today to present on survivorship for the primary care physician. Today, I am hopeful to go through the following educational objectives. The first is to define cancer survivorship and summarize prevalence and characteristics of cancer survivors in the United States. Then I'm going to review the four key tenets of survivorship care and summarize recommendations for recurrent screening for breast, prostate, colon, and melanoma. The bulk of my topic is gonna be for the following educational objective, which is to summarize guideline-based recommendations for the management of the following very common long-term side effects. And those include fear of recurrence, anxiety and depression, cancer-related fatigue, bone health, vasomotor symptoms, otherwise known as hot flashes, aromatase inhibitor-induced arthralgias, and lastly, peripheral neuropathy. Before going into the talk, I wanted to go through a couple of questions to get everybody's minds going. In the United States, there are currently how many cancer survivors? The answer choices are 12 million, 15 million, 18 million, 20 million, and 22 million. The next question, which of the following results in the highest risk of bone loss? Is it aromatase inhibitor therapy, chemotherapy-induced ovarian failure, a combination of aromatase inhibitor therapy and ovarian suppression, or menopause? Question three, routine lab monitoring is recommended for recurrence for which of the following malignancies? Colon, prostate, breast cancer, melanoma, colon and prostate, or all of the above? Question four, which of the following best approximates the prevalence of any mood disorder among cancer survivors? And the selections go from 5% to 25%. And then the last question, all of the following are reasonable supportive care options for hot flashes except, and the options are acupuncture, black cohosh, oxybutynin, venlafaxine, or vitamin E. So to start, I'm gonna go through an overview. First, who is a cancer survivor? The National Coalition of Cancer Survivorship defines a cancer survivor as anyone who's been diagnosed with cancer from the time of diagnosis through the balance of his or her life. So this is a lot longer than many people currently define cancer survivors. That's from time of diagnosis. It also includes patients with metastatic disease. Who are your cancer survivors or who is most likely to be a cancer survivor de depends on what, if they're a man or a woman, and these are the top five for each. For men in the United States, the top five cancers are prostate, colon and rectal, melanoma, bladder, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. For women, the most prevalent are breast, uterine, colon and rectal, 
thyroid, and melanoma. In the United States, as of January 1, 2022, there are 18.1 million cancer survivors. Importantly, this number is expected to continue to increase. By 2032, we're expected to have 22.5 million cancer survivors, and by 2040, that number is supposed to increase to 26 million. Of note, the highest increase is going to be among our patients who are older than age 65. Also importantly, it's not only that patients are surviving, they're surviving longer. So the number of cancer patients, cancer survivors, currently surviving longer than five years is supposed to increase by 16.3 million in the next 10 years. How about right now? Right now, 69% of all survivors of all cancers are expected to live more than 10 years after, the, sorry, five years after their diagnosis. 47 will live 10 years after their diagnosis, and 18% will live over 20 years past their initial diagnosis for cancer. That leads me to, well, how do patients go through survivorship or what are the phases of survivorship care? In the past, survivorship really just focused at the top with early stage or curative, patients who got treatment and then were quote unquote cured. And there were three defined phases of this. Acute, that typically was at time of diagnosis, a lot of going through tests, trying to figure out what the stage was, acute treatments, a huge focus on the acute phases in terms of the treatments. Enhance, this typically was after the acute treatments had finished, like chemotherapy or surgery, radiation, but there were still side effects and also a big trying to transition back to normal or a new normal. And then long-term, so this typically is, you know, further out, fear of recurrence might be less common at this point, but unfortunately we've learned over time patients will continue likely to struggle with at least one long-term side effect. Thankfully, there has been increased attention on those with advanced or metastatic breast, breast cancer and other cancers. Now, metastatic cancers are considered part of the survivor population. There might, some might even use the term metavivors. There are different goals here, controlling disease, prolonging life, improving quality of life, and end stage. So in the past, particularly for patients with metastatic cancers, most of the focus was on end of care life, which remains important and remains a huge goal to optimize and improve quality of end of life care. But as you can see, survivorship care is varied, it's heterogeneous, and it's going to need to be patient specific. So that leads me to what are the tenets of survivorship care? And this leads me to the fact that survivorship still remains a relatively new field. There was a landmark symposium and then publication that came out in 2005, so not that long ago, called From Cancer Patient to Cancer Survivor, Lost in Transition trying to look at what was the field of survivorship, what was available, what was being done. At the time, unfortunately, there were no standards of care for how to provide care, how to survey, how, what should even be done for cancer survivors. Additionally, there was insufficient communication between cancer specialists and primary care providers. Most of the care was focused on surveillance about recurrence or secondary malignancies. And it was found that there was a huge need for cancer survivorship resources and research. What were cancer survivors' needs? What works? What can we do to improve survivorship for all patients? Out of this, there has been a lot of progress, a lot more research, and the field of survivorship has defined the following four areas as key areas for us to focus on in terms of providing survivorship care. The first is surveillance. The second is prevention, or another way to say it is encouraging healthy lifestyles. The third is assessing and treating long and late-term effects of treatment. 
And the last, importantly, is coordination of care. So starting with surveillance, we know that cancer patients have a higher rate of cancer compared to the general population. Some of this is due to exposures. Some of this is due to genetic risks or mutations. Some of this is due to the cancer treatments that they received. Unfortunately, 18% of all cancers between 2009 and 2013 were actually secondary primaries in patients that had a history of a cancer diagnosis. The risk of a second cancer differs by type. So for example, small cell lung cancer has a significant increased risk of a secondary malignancy, mainly due to the DPACO exposure that a patient with small cell lung cancer has had in the past compared to a thyroid cancer survivor. Ultimately, right now, 8.1% of survivors will develop a subsequent cancer during their lifetime. Thus, screening for recurrence and secondary malignancies remains a tenant of survivorship care. The next tenant is prevention. Really, I like to think about promoting healthy lifestyles. So importantly, that's exercise, diet. It's also avoiding toxic exposures, things like minimizing alcohol and tobacco cessation. We know that unfortunately in the literature, most cancer survivors are not getting the recommended daily activity or nutrition recommendations, and that many patients continue to have um, increased alcohol intake or continue to smoke, despite lots of evidence proving that all of these factors help to reduce the risk of recurrence as well as secondary malignancies. Also important is immunizations, risk reduction, and then having routine follow-up with a primary care physician. The majority of my later talk is gonna focus on this tenant, which is late and long-term effects. We know, unfortunately, that cancer, one, can be a very traumatic diagnosis for patients, and that the diagnosis itself, the treatments that one receives, can cause a lot of side effects. We think most aptly or most readily about physical side effects. However, mental side effects, social side effects like the effect on children and family or finances, or even spiritual. Patients can sometimes struggle with meaning or what their role is or what their values are post-treatment. Importantly, there's a huge role that can be played in terms of referring patients appropriately to resources depending on their needs. So for example, for finances, social work, or a financial, financial counselor, or for mental health, counseling, or a support group. <clears throat> Lastly, coordination of care. As all providers are aware, cancer care is becoming more and more complex. Patients are oftentimes on treatments for a long period of time and then have side effects for a long period of time. The studies have shown that best outcomes are for patients who are co-managed by oncologists and primary care, and that good communication between providers is essential to optimizing care for our patients. One way to help with facilitation of communication is a survivorship care plan and treatment summary. This is recommended for patients to get a summary of all the treatments that they've received, as well as a bit of a roadmap of how they should be looking for and screening for potential long-term side effects and also resources that might be available to them in their community. The Commission on Cancer Standard 4.8 is the most recent Commission on C Cancer Standard that helps to enhance through mandates what should be done for survivorship care. The previous standard really emphasized survivorship care plans as being an essential part of survivorship care. The more recent standard that came out in 2020 is more of a focus on a program and making sure that we're meeting the, can the cancer patient's needs are being met. This is often led by a survivorship program coordinator, a focus on a team, and the standard has a minimum of three program services. So examples of services offered at the James include a survivorship clinic. We also have a care and aging resiliency clinic that focuses on our geriatric population. 
Living Well with Advanced Breast Cancer Clinic. So this is a survivorship clinic that focuses on the supportive care needs and the educational needs of patients with metastatic breast cancer. Adolescent and Young Adult Program, focusing on our cancer survivors and our cancer patients who are in the AYA range. HOPE Program, which is a support, a peer-to-peer -peer counseling. There's also support groups, women's intimacy and sexual health program, and others. This is obviously not a comprehensive list. So moving on to screening. Surveillance depends on the type of cancer and it varies by cancer type. I am going to review surveillance recommendations for four cancer types. The first one being breast cancer. That's near and dear to my heart as a breast medical oncologist. As you can see from this slide, that the history and physicals differ depending on how far out someone is from their curative treatment. So on this slide is really the surveillance for patients who have curative intent breast cancer. So typically we follow patients every three to six months for years one through three, and then every six to 12 months for years four to five, and then after year five, breast cancer survivors should be having a history and physical at least annually. The type of breast imaging is going to depend on the type of surgery that the patient received. For those who receive lumpectomies, they still need bilateral mammograms. And depending on the density of the breast, they may need ultrasounds or additional imaging. If they've received a mastectomy, well then they still need imaging on the contralateral side. And then those who have received bilateral mastectomies do not need routine breast imaging, but do need chest wall exams. There are no labs and no imaging that are recommended for asymptomatic survivors. Moving on to prostate cancer. What's important is there are different risk groups for prostate cancer, very low, low, intermediate, high, and very high. And the type of surveillance is going to depend on where a patient's cancer falls. For those who are in the very low risk, and also many who fall in the low risk, they are oftentimes under active surveillance. So typically this is done with a PSA, as well as a DRE, and depending on the patient, they may need repeat biopsies or MRIs, but this is typically done less than or equal to annually. As patients have successfully or um, have higher risk disease, particularly for those who are in initial definitive therapy, the PSA reme remains an important test for surveillance. It's typically done every six to 12 months for the first five years. And then the DRE also can be done annually, but typically can be omitted if the PSA is undetectable. For those who have lymph nodes or are on androgen deprivation therapy, um, typically we also do physical exams and more frequent PSA screening. Uh, the imaging is based on symptoms or if a patient starts having a rising PSA. Moving on to colon cancer. Similar to um, prostate cancer, this is gonna depend on risk or the way it's done for the NCCN guidelines, stage. So for stage one, typically the surveillance is by colonoscopy. So after their initial surgery, a repeat colonoscopy is usually done one year later. If there's an advanced adenoma, you stick to the annual screening. However, if their next, that first annual is clear, no evidence of disease, no advanced adenoma, typically that starts to space to three years and then to five years, depending on the findings on the colonoscopy. Surveillance for stage two and stage three typically starts similar to breast cancer with histories and physicals every three to six months and then spacing out to every six months in, every, in years three through five. The CEA is an important screening lab test that's done every three to six months in year one to two and then every six months in years three to five. Imaging can be helpful typically starting with every six to 12 months, and that continues years one to five. Colonoscopy screening is similar, and so the reason I don't have it on both 
sides is it's going to depend on how that annual colonoscopy went. So for both, for years one through five, the colonoscopy is going to start first with year one, and then depending on what you find at year one, you either continue with annual or it can then start spacing to three and then to five years. Lastly, I want to go through surveillance for melanoma. For melanoma, this also depends on stage. So for stage zero, there are no routine labs and no routine imaging that are recommended, but having a physical exam and a history at least annually. For stage 1A to 2A, again, an HMP every six to 12 months for the first five years and then annually after that, and no routine labs or imaging. For stage 2B to 4, it's, this typically tends to be a little bit more frequently in years one to two in terms of history and physical, and then spaces to annually years three to five. The imaging is more um, varied depending on where the melanoma was. It can be considered every three to 12 months and every six to 12 months, but again, it's gonna depend on the clinical features of the cancer and where it was located and what type of imaging would be most helpful. It's typically not recommended after the first couple of years, and all of this is in the absence of symptoms. So to summarize, for breast cancer survivors, a history and physical, as well as breast imaging, remains important surveillance tests that are recommended. For colorectal, history and physical, CEA, and depending on the stage, a CT chest and pelvis. For prostate, history and physical and a PSA remain recommended surveillance tests. And then for melanoma, self-exams, skin exams as part of the history and physical, and then imaging is going to depend on clinical features of the patients, but may include CTs, MRIs, or PET scans, and those are typically during the first couple of years after diagnosis. At this point, I would like to transition to monitoring and managing some common late effects of cancer treatments. These are just a couple of potential needs that I hear commonly in my own clinic. Neuropathy, meaning and adjusting to a new normal, fatigue, fear of recurrence, financial concerns. Importantly, it can be multifaceted, multidimensional, include physical, spiritual, psychological, as well as family, friends, and it's important for us to ask. One of the most common side effects or long-term um, adverse effects is fear of recurrence. It tends to be very common. Thankfully, most patients fall within the mild to moderate range for fear of recurrence. However, 7% of patients are within the severe range. Importantly, stage does not seem to matter. And so it's not that patients with stage three are going to have a increased risk of fear of recurrence compared to those with stage one. The definition is fear, worry, or concern related to the possibility that a cancer will come back or progress. Importantly, this remains an unmet need when cancer survivors are asked, are they being asked this and is this something that's being met for them? Unfortunately, 30% still say no. So how does it present? For mild fear of recurrence, it's occasional thoughts of cancer, so less than once a week. Typically, external triggers, like a family member or friend being diagnosed or an anniversary of their, of their diagnosis can trigger this. It usually lasts a few days and it, it improves over time. So the farther someone gets out from their active treatment, the less that this tends to occur. For moderate to severe, it's more frequent, at least once a week. There's no trigger, inability to control thoughts, and it's causing significant stress. Sometimes patients can't stop looking up their cancer diagnosis on the internet or engage in anything else. So how should we respond? Well, we need to ask about it. 
we need to make sure that patients know that it's common, it's normal, and sometimes it can actually be helpful. By being cognizant of one's body, by being adherent to treatment recommendations and healthy lifestyle uh, interventions, they can actually be proactive in reducing their risk of recurrence. However, we want to make sure that each and every patient has the best possible survivorship available to them. And severe fear of recurrence can really m mitigate this. And so it really needs, patients need to be offered interventions to make sure that it's something that is not limiting them. So talking about it is a first important piece. Reducing sti stigma and patient denial of anxiety is another important piece. What are ways that we can help reduce fear of recurrence? Well, encouraging patients to follow up with recommended surveillance tests, survivorship clinic visit, and having a survivorship care plan so that they can understand their diagnosis and things to look out for. Support groups can be helpful, and mental health services. Sometimes cognitive behavioral therapy or medication for anxiety can be helpful. Healthy lifestyle interventions, so things like smoking sensation and exercise. Exercise I love because we know it can help with mood and sleep and overall um, quality of life, in addition to heart health and all the other great long-term effects of exercise. Sleep is huge. How is someone's sleep hygiene? Are they getting the recommended enough amount? Are they minimizing screen time? Are they minimizing naps and caffeine? And then there's a lot of nutrition questions and sometimes people can try to have control by limiting their intake and there can be a lot of misinformation. So our dietitians can be a huge resource for patients. This is a great transition to distress in cancer. So fear of recurrence is on the spectrum, but distress is multifactorial. And it can be anything from an unpleasant experience to really limiting someone. And it can be physical, it can be cognitive, it can be behavioral, it can be associated with physical th symptoms, and it can range from vulnerability and sadness to spiritual crisis. What's the prevalence of mood disorders in cancer survivors? Well, unfortunately, it remains very common. So for any mood disorder, it's 20.7%. And importantly, this can persist with 21% of patients over five years post-diagnosis having a diagnosis of anxiety or depression. Anxiety remains the most common long-term mental health concern for cancer survivors. <clears throat> so the first key aspect is we have to screen. And there's a number of ways that we can do this. One that I really like is the NCCN Distress Thermometer. Because not only is a patient able to actually rank their distress from zero to 10 on a thermometer, but they can mark off key concerns that they have. So that could be anxiety, that could be finances, that could be taking care of their children or transportation. So it allows you to screen for more than just anxiety and depression. The tried and true that we use in our own clinics is the GAD7 for anxiety, as well as the PHQ2 and PHQ9. But I've listed a couple of other um, scales that have quite a bit of evidence to support their use as well. So when we think about treatment models, the first step is educating and destigmatizing because obviously this is a common concern for many cancer survivors. And what a patient and meeting a patient where they are. So for low intensity, that could be peer support groups, that could be exercise programs or self-help or meditation pro, um, programs. More high intensity could be things like individual or group cognitive behavioral therapy or supportive expressive psychotherapies. And then at the Stephanie Spielman, we are very fortunate to have a collaborative care model. So that's with um, help of social work and a consulting psychiatrist to help with prescription 
prescribing medications or counseling um, for those who have mood disorders. And so that's becoming more common um, as a, a way to expand access to mental health uh, providers and experts. At this point, I want to transition to bone health. So particularly within breast cancer, this is a very important concern. This is also a very important concern in prostate cancer. And the reason that I mention both is that both cancers are oftentimes treated with treatments that block hormones. And unfortunately, testosterone, estrogen can be very helpful for bones. Women can lose up to 30% of their bone mass within the first five years of menopause. But we know that cancer treatment can cause much more severe and faster bone loss. The worst offender, chemotherapy. Chemotherapy-induced ovarian failure has the highest association with bone loss. After that is ovarian suppression and an aromatase inhibitor and then aromatase inhibitors. So screening is going to depend on risk factors and varies. the guidelines vary a little bit by society, but in general, if our patients have a risk factor, so cancer treatments, genetics, smoking, we should think about ordering bone mineral densities or DEXAs. NCCN goes a little bit further and says that patients, women specifically who are on ovarian suppression, have ovarian failure, or an aromatase inhibitor should have bone monitoring at baseline when they start these treatments and then periodically going forward. In my own practice, that typically is every two years. Fatigue. This is probably the most common symptom that I hear about in my practice. It's probably the most common symptom that you hear about in your own practice. The difficulty is the prevalence depends on the study and can range anywhere from 28 to 91 percent. The other difficulty is pretty much every treatment that we use for cancer can cause fatigue. Chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, endocrine therapy, immunotherapy, you name it, it fatigue is part of the side effect profile. Importantly, we need to make sure that we're ruling out other causes. So just because a patient has a history of cancer and cancer treatments doesn't mean they can't have another reason for iron deficiency anemia or thyroid dysfunction or cardiac dysfunction. Also, we just went through that unfortunately mood disorders are very common. So is their depression being managed? Are they sleeping okay? How about pain? And we need to make sure we're thinking broadly because all of these can contribute to fatigue. There are several scales that have been validated in order to screen. These two have specifically been validated among cancer patients, the brief fatigue inventory, as well as the cancer-related fatigue distress scale. The best treatment? Well, to date, the data shows it's exercise, and it's a combination of both aerobic exercise and resistance. So for aerobic, typically trying to get at least three sessions of 30 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise, and then for resistance training, two to three times per week of big core group muscles, and again, about 30 minutes. So overall, about 150 minutes per week, and this should be moderate exercise. But for fatigue, it's the combination that has had the best data. Other things that can be helpful with exercise, in addition to fatigue, is mood and quality of life, not to mention balance. Hot flash management, or vasomotor symptoms. So this remains a very common side effect, particularly for endocrine therapies. So things like aromatase inhibitors, tamoxifen, but also androgen deprivation treatments. So there are uh, several different options available. Oftentimes, many of my patients don't want another pill, but might be willing to consider vitamins. Vitamin E and magnesium have both been shown to help. The reason magnesium has a star next to it is I usually start with once a day and then move up to twice a day to make sure that a patient doesn't have a lot of diarrhea when they start this. Non-pharmacologic options include acupuncture 
as well as cognitive behavioral therapy. With regards to pharmacologic, my preferred go-to, if there isn't a contraindication, is venlafaxine, which can be very helpful for reducing the frequency and severity of hot flashes. Gabapentin is my usually my second line, and then the, below that are other options. Oxybutynin has been shown at low dose to be effective in clinical trials, as has pregabalin. The reason that paroxetine has two stars next to it is that it does interact with the CYP2D6 inhibitor and so therefore would not be preferred for somebody who is on tamoxifen. Management of aromatase inhibitor induced arthralgias. So unfortunately, this remains a very common side effect with approximately 50% of postmenopausal women reporting this, and it can be muscles or joint pain. Equally disappointing is that it's a major reason that women and men don't complete their therapy, with 20% discontinuing. There is quite a bit of evidence to support that switching aromatase inhibitors can increase tolerance. There are three in the class, and so I have seen success with women being able to switch from one to the other. Also importantly, there's no difference in efficacy between the three. Importantly, exercise and acupuncture have been demonstrated in randomized trials to have a significant reduction in pain and interference. And these are typically two things that I recommend for my patients, especially the movement and exercise that can have a profound decrease in uh, joint pain, stiffness, and just improvement of overall quality of life. The last symptom that I want to delve into is peripheral neuropathy. This unfortunately remains very common and the definition is nerve-related pain, numbness, tingling, swelling, cold sensitivity, or muscle weakness and cramps. Again, the prevalence depends on studies, but it ranges from 19% to 85%. Unfortunately, 40% of cancer survivors can have permanent symptoms, and it can cause a significant reduction in quality of life, as well as disability. There are multiple agents that can cause peripheral neuropathy. The ones that come to mind most readily are on this slide. So platinum, that can be cisplatin and oxaliplatin. The one in my realm as a breast cancer provider is taxanes, so docetaxel and paclitaxel being the most common too. For multiple myeloma, those are drugs like proteasome inhibitors or immunomodulary drugs such as thalidomide. Rarely, immunotherapy can also cause CPI. CIPN. Radiation can also cause peripheral neuropathy, and unfortunately, the mechanism still remains not very well understood. So there have been a lot of trials trying to look into peripheral neuropathy. For prevention, unfortunately, we in the literature, there are 53 agents that have been tried, everything from vitamins to tricyclics, to um, SNRIs, and nothing has worked for prevention. For treatment, the reason that duloxetine is bolded is that this is the only treatment that ASCO recommends. There was a, a multicenter randomized trial looking at patients who either received oxaliplatin or a taxane, and there was a significant reduction in pain associated um, with taking duloxetine. So this remains our best treatment for peripheral neuropathy caused by chemotherapy. Everything else on this slide would be off-label use, but oftentimes, unfortunately, especially if duloxetine doesn't work or a patient can't take it for various reasons, they end up being things that we consider on a case-to-case -case basis. Most of the studies, especially for things like gabapentin or the TCAs, is neuropathy in other realms, like diabetes, for instance. For cancer, none of these agents have been proven to be able to treat peripheral neuropathy with a strong randomized trial. 
Acupuncture has had some very small trials that trend towards improvement, but again, nothing to be able to say with large data and no large society guidelines like ASCO or NCCN are recommending these as a first line or for a treatment. So most of these remain off-label options. I oftentimes utilize my physical therapist because unfortunately neuropathy can cause fall risk and imbalance and so physical therapy can be really helpful there in terms of reducing harm improving balance, improving core strength, and that's where that can be very helpful. So in conclusion, I'd like to come back to those five questions that we talked about at the beginning. So in the United States, there are currently 18 million cancer survivors as of January 1st, 2022. Although everything on this slide can cause an increased risk of bone loss, the one that causes the highest risk is chemotherapy-induced ovarian failure. Routine lab monitoring is not recommended for all malignancies. However, the guidelines do recommend it for colon cancer, that's the CEA, and prostate cancer, the PSA. Which of the following best approximates the prevalence of any mood disorder among cancer survivors? The best answer is 20%. And then lastly, all of the following are reasonable supportive care options for hot flashes except, well, the one with the least amount of data that is not recommended is black cohosh. All of the other are reasonable options to offer to your patients who have vasomotor symptoms or significant hot flashes. I would like to thank you all for your time. In summary, there are more and more patients who are surviving beyond their initial diagnosis, and they have distinct and unique needs that are due to their cancer diagnosis as well as the treatments that they received. Routine care for cancer survivors should include screening for recurrence and secondary malignancies, optimizing healthy behaviors, managing late and long-term side effects, and great care coordination between providers. Unfortunately, cancer survivors are at increased risk of second cancers as well as recurrence, and the screening recommendations do vary based on the primary site. Lastly, mood disorders as well as fear of recurrence remain very common, and it is very important that we screen and manage these side effects. And with that, I would like to thank you. Well, thanks, Ashley. Immunotherapy has recently been used to treat a variety of, of cancers. Are there long-term sequelae of drugs such as pdl one inhibitors that we should be aware of in cancer survivors? Absolutely. So the best data that we have is in melanoma because it's been used the longest. And although there's still a lot of research to be done on long-term effects, the ones to keep in mind are going to be endocrinopathies. So thyroid dysfunction like hypothyroidism or secondary adrenal insufficiency are likely to be permanent. And so those are ones for us to continue to monitor for. Well, breast cancer often affects premenopausal women. What should we know about pregnancy and breast cancer survivors? So I think the most exciting news is going to be the positive trial that just came out at the most recent San Antonio Breast Conference. This trial followed premenopausal women over five years, and for women who wanted to become pregnant, there was a two-year pause in their treatment. And thankfully, most women were able to become pregnant, and there was no increased rate of recurrence thus far compared to historical controls from the text and soft trials. You mentioned that depression is very common in cancer survivors. What about pharmacologic management? Are there specific antidepressants that you prefer? So this is going to be based on the patient. But one thing to keep in mind is going to be patients who are on tamoxifen because tamoxifen is a prodrug that needs the CYP2D6 inhibitor uh, enzyme in order to be converted from prodrug to active drug. And unfortunately, there are some NRIs and SSRIs that do interact with this. And so ones that I recommend are going to be ones that don't interact. Citalopram being an example or venlafaxine being an example.
How about anxiety? Uh, can it be managed non-pharmacologically or does it pres uh, require prescription medications? So I think the importance is meeting the patient where they are. And so every patient is going to have different preferences. But we know that counseling can be a huge um, advantage for some patients. Exercise can be an important option, support groups. So there are non-pharmacologic options. And I think for every patient, what works for them is going to be a little bit different. So first screening and then meeting the patient where they are. Is there any special diet that you prefer for cancer survivors? Yeah. So I wish there was a cancer diet, but what we know is that a plant-predominant diet is our best um, diet. There, we know that um, fruits, vegetables, making sure people are getting enough protein. I like the imagery of eat the rainbow because it's a good check for patients to be able to look at their plate and see are they getting a variety of fruits and vegetables. What should the primary care provider know about return to work recommendations in cancer survivors? So as we went through, there are a multitude of different potential long-term effects. The vast majority of patients, thankfully, will be able to get back to work. But it depends on what they do and what their long-term side effects are. And so again, trying to figure out what is a patient struggling with and then what accommodations might be available for the patient at their, at their work. You know, in, in my own practice, uh, some of the common questions that I would get in my lung cancer patients uh, who are starting treatment is, am, am I going to lose my hair? Uh, is hair loss inevitable with cancer treatment, and is it permanent? It depends on the treatments. So thankfully, treatments like immunotherapy, rarely patients are going to lose their hair. Things like endocrine therapies, aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen, they might have a little hair thinning, but not complete hair loss. Unfortunately, there's still a couple of classic chemotherapies like the anthracyclines or the taxanes that do cause hair loss. One thing for some patients to keep in mind is if this is important to them, they should ask about cooling caps. One final question. Here at the OSU James uh, Cancer Hospital, you have a lot of resources for cancer survivors. Many of our viewers are practicing in smaller hospitals that don't have those resources. For a group of physicians or a hospital who's interested in setting up cancer survivorship programs, what would you recommend to those hospitals that would be the key elements that they should put in that type of a clinic or that type of a program? So I think first is, what are the needs of your patients? You know, what are your most common cancer survivors, what are their needs? And focusing on their needs first, because what's gonna work at OSU might not be what works in a community practice. But as you can tell, there's many things that are gonna be helpful for many patients, like getting them moving, so physical therapy, or a dietitian for all the nutrition questions. The other thing is, let's utilize the resources collectively. There are a lot of online resources, um, some resources like James Care for Life here at OSU can be free for patients and some of them are still being available via telehealth and or online and so that could be a resource for patients who don't live locally. Well, thanks, Ashley. We're going to finish up with a final key point about cancer survivorship. Ashley? Thank you. I think the biggest key point is that cancer survivors are here and will continue to grow as a population. So knowing what is important to them and screening for side effects we know are important that have treatments is, is essential going forward. Well, Ashley, thanks again for joining us today. And for all of you viewing, don't forget that you can get American Board of Internal Medicine maintenance of certification points for viewing MedNet and then answering the post-test questions following the webcast. Dr. Jingjing Mao will be off again next week, so I'll be returning as your guest host. Joining me will be Dr. Heather Saha and Dr. Ashley Bird to discuss the care of patients with intellectual and developmental disabilities. It should be a great program.